You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 1 of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts, Paul Swanson and Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst getting groceries, forgotten passwords, and the shifting state of our world. This is the fifth of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we'll be discussing the seventh chapter, Going Somewhere Good, the eighth chapter, Doing and Saying, and the ninth chapter, Things at Their Depth. This episode explores a lot at the heart of the universal Christ, such as being open to change, participating in changing the systems around us, and experiencing the fullness of life at its depth. So, as we're wanting to discuss um, some specific chapters this morning, uh, you talk in your book, uh, in chapter seven, about the nature of change. And it's so difficult for us to accept change. At least for me, it is. Oh. I, theoretically, I'm all about it. But then when it's actually happening, mm. I'm dying. You know, just mm. like, I hate it. So I was curious to know, what is the most difficult change that you've gone through or are currently experiencing right now? Hmm. Uh, I do think this whole, what I'm going to call, well-knownness, <laughs> that I now either suffer or enjoy, I don't know which, uh, has always surprised me and scared me. Uh, I can say honestly before God, I know I didn't plan this or seek this. I always say I, I'm not really ambitious, I'm righteous, which is worse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't have to fight ambition too much. Maybe it's because I've always enjoyed a certain well-knownness from the very first year, you know. So maybe I learned to take it for granted. But uh, it's still been a change that I've constantly feared. Mm. When I see my name on books and I see the way I'm introduced at conferences, I get the mail I get, all of it says, Richard, what have you become? And is there anything true about that. So I fear being a phony. I fear being a hypocrite. I feel fear being self-promoting. That's been the hardest change, this moving into notoriety, if I can use that mm -hmm. word, yeah. Because uh, I know there's a lot of people who love me, but I, and this balances, and I need it. There's a lot of people who hate me, too. And so it means holding the projections, and I do use that word intentionally, the projections from both sides. The people who put me on a pedestal that I don't deserve, uh, and the people who hate me uh, and don't even know me. <laughs> uh, so it feels like I don't deserve that either. So, you know, you've heard that phrase, it's lonely at the top. I'm not saying that to gain any sympathy. I have a wonderful life. But there is a loneliness 
in being thought you're a whole bunch of things and you know you're not. Mm. <laughs> and so the the split consciousness, and, I, and I'm sure I jump back and forth. My ego inflates in enjoying all this fame and, and admiration. And then in the quiet of my own little house, I say, but Richard, you know it's not true. <laughs> Even when I, you know, I was reading a little bit of the book this morning, and I'm not making this up, I'm not exaggerating it. I really said several times, did I write that? <laughs> That's where, pretty good. That was good. <laughs> where, where did that come from? So, wow. yeah. That's that's wow. This literally this morning, um, my daughter was asking what the word famous means. Really, and my wife said, "Well, you know, Richard, he's <laughs> he's famous in a lot of circles," and that didn't make sense. Like he's known by a lot of people. And my mom's like, "My mom, <laughs> my wife, <laughs> my wife, boy, Freudian slip." Um, <laughs> uh, she says, "Well, you know, a lot of kids know who Daniel Tiger is." And then she got what famous was because oh, yeah. there's a cartoon character oh, a that cartoon. kids knew. Um, so you didn't make her radar on the fame. So she'll help Daniel keep you humble. Daniel Tiger. You got to beat Daniel Tiger, Padre. That's a cartoon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. It's interesting though because I do feel like this tendency that we have to project yes. wisdom yes. or goodness yes. or yes. Uh, you know eldership or that person is holy yes yes. not me that person yes. they really really know yeah that split i think also has to do with that split that you talk about so much between us and god of oh of that's so perfect putting yes. it out there yes. and instead of being able to see it in mm -hmm. our in our own messiness and complexity mm -hmm. yeah you've probably heard me say I'm often bothered by evangelical music, which just keeps saying over and over again how wonderful God is. And of course, God is wonderful. But coming with that positive theology is again and again a negative anthropology, mm. a negative image of the human person. And so we project more and more greatness onto God and never let it reflect back to the dignity in which we have been created in, in that God's image. So too much God praise when it's exaggerated and hyperbolic, even though God deserves all praise, I'm not denying that, but your very need to excessively do it is usually a loss of your own power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to confirm your point. Mm -hmm. And to continue with that thread of the split, you have this fabulous story about your professor talking Ooh. about Plato and Jesus. I wonder if you could relay that to kind of set some of that <laughs> groundwork. You know, uh, there was a Franciscan. He was fairly young, uh, had just come back from studying in Europe during the early 60s, the Vatican Council. So he got totally invested in, in the historical theology that I sort of present. I had him for four years as my liturgy professor and four years as my church history professor. So we got to know how he thought. Larry Landini was his name, an Italian-American, and very imaginative genius of sorts, very creative. So he had dropped the line, 
in various contexts in, the, in church history and in the liturgy class that much of the work, church is platonic. And of course, because we'd all studied philosophy, we knew what that meant. Platonic, where there is a huge split between matter and spirit, between soul and body. The, the two never really came together in Plato's philosophy. That's why we speak of platonic idealism, the love of ideals rather than reality. Uh, so uh, Plato was often spoken of critically because we were Franciscan incarnationalists. And uh, so he summed it up in the very last day of my deacon class in 1969. He'd always walk in with a pile of books, which he'd hardly ever quote from, but I guess that's what professors do. And he's, <laughs> he's holding this pile of books, uh, backing out the door. And he says, just remember, much of the church has more to do with Plato than it does with Jesus. That he would make that his final uh, definitive statement was just mind-blowing. Because this man had a critical mind and loved the church, by the way. Mm. You know, loved liturgy and Catholicism. And so this wasn't a rebel. This was an Orthodox loyalist. But he still saw that again and again, our, the real theology of the church was not incarnational. God was still out there to be placated, to be sacrificed to, to be pleased. And the, the gap that uh, Jesus in Christ overcame was really not an active principle in most Catholics' lives. And he was critical of Protestantism. He, he felt even more so hmm. with Protestantism. We were bad enough, but he said they completely missed the point. Oh, <laughs> Forgive yeah. me. I mean, we're not even. It's it's like it's not even a a basic no assumption in in most of our Christian hmm. understanding. You know, Ilia Delio says that she's like, I don't even think Christianity has gotten the point of incarnation yet. <laughs> no, no. Like we haven't even really even begin to yeah. let that sink in. Yes. See, and it's no accident that Elia is a Franciscan. Uh -huh. <laughs> we just absorb that, I think, if we get good training. And she obviously did. How did the Western Church get more aligned with Plato than Jesus in this process of history? You know, I'm going to be very, I don't know if this is the true answer. It's, it's part of the true answer that you, you both know, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek. And Hellenistic culture was the superior culture of the Mediterranean world. Everyone, even the Romans, imitated the Greeks. Everybody wanted to be Greek because they, with good reason, exemplified supreme intelligence and sophistication. So um, with uh, even using the Greek language, the gospel just inevitably, it seems, because of its historical and chronological situation, got filtered through a Greek philosophical lens. Hmm? The, the example that's usually used is logos, which is a Greek philosophical principle. You and I think it's a Christian principle. We were just pulling everything we could from Greek culture because it, it dominated the field. Hmm. If you were smart, you knew Greek. <laughs> And that's why even then, 
12 centuries later, Thomas Aquinas could, with credibility, pull Aristotle out of the woods and redeem him. And we were just all ready to believe it because if it came from Greece, mm -hmm. it was high level. And again, I think we got to admit that was in great part true. You just, when I was in Greece a few years ago, I just looked up at the Parthenon and I said, my God, every great idea <laughs> filtered through this culture. So, um, yeah, that became the matrix along with then Roman imperial matrix through which, uh, the lens through which we first read the gospel, mm. put the two together. Greek logic, which was largely dualistic <laughs> for all of its brilliance, and uh, Roman imperialism. That's how much, for me, Christ submitted to being human in all things. Mm. Mm. That even the, the historical situation that he knew would limit him, he let that happen too. We've inherited some problematic things with those worldviews though. And among them is that kind of static binary Ooh. division between mm -hmm. spirit and matter um, that is so contrary to the very nature of reality, it seems, which is mm. so evolutionary and um, constantly changing and spontaneous and emergent. And so uh, one of the things that I love that you say, which feels to me so incarnational is uh, we can't think our ways into new ways mm. of living. We have to live our way into new ways of thinking. Think. And that line of Jesus when he says, change your mind, me mm. the metanoia, you know? Mm. Change your worldview, change how you see the world. I wonder if you could share how you see that process of change happening. Is it, does it start with a new insight or is it lived into through action? Is it both? Well, what comes into my mind, so I guess I'm supposed to say it, is uh, what Cynthia has taught us about third force. That I do think someone or some movement emerges that's new, creative, exciting. Now what the cross told us is that even with the new incarnation, there would and always will be pushback against it. That's the doctrine of the cross, which was supposed to save us from cynicism. Uh, uh, death and resurrection is the pattern, what I call three steps forward, two steps backward. And that is so against the grain. That is so counterintuitive. I think I say in the book, we needed a divine zinger to get the, the pushback message, because especially we Western people with our philosophy of progress. We who have enjoyed success, security, advancement, technology, we're just progress people to the core. And that means straight line forward. So everything in us resists the two steps backward, the folly of the cross. But for me, that's the genius of the gospel that it's, it's realism. In fact, you can use this phrase. I wish I, I don't think I used it in the book. I wish I had. I'm now thinking of the gospel as 
tragic realism. Mm -hmm. If you want to put two words, tragic realism. Uh, not idealism. Well, it, it, there's certainly a, a goal, the kingdom of God. But um, it's, it's not just a utopia vision. Mm -hmm. It's tragic realism. In the real, you can find God, but be prepared for that reality to punch you. Mm. <laughs> and I don't know why, why God did it that way. I really don't. But it's obvious. Look at the church today. Mm. Look at the United States of America. Mm. There is so much regression, seemingly. Uh, it's hard to believe. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about the nature of fear around change. Mm. And is that not so much of the pushback of the regression that you're describing is that deep down we're, we're creatures of habit. The, yes. the forward, the new, the emergent mm -hmm. is unknown. Yeah. And that feels to me like such a critical part of what you teach in the path of contemplation, which is acclimating to the unknown, mm -hmm. getting used to not knowing so that we can enter Perfect. into new ways of knowing. Yes. Yeah, unless you have that humility about knowing. You know, I was reading Paulo Freire this week, or last week, and uh, he talks about circles of certitude, and they're equally on the right and on the left, self-affirming, enclosed circles of self-validating answers. And uh, we all ensconce ourselves in circles of certitude instead of living in the naked unknowing of the middle. So uh, you said it already. I think we're, we're creatures of habit. We love the familiar. And uh, the unknown is always scary. So you, you focused in on fear. So once we learn to, to recognize the shape of our own fear. What does fear feel like in me? Mm -hmm. Until you know that, you will act out of it all the time. And look at American politics. Mm -hmm. It's just like teenagers, both sides yelling at one another and both afraid of losing. <sighs> when your only goal left is to win, your, your only great fear is losing. And that's a lot of fear. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how God's going to get us through this. And, uh, you know, I was watching that CNN little clip on the growth of hate last night. It's not just in America. It's all over Europe right now, too. Mm -hmm. Anti-Semitism, neo-Nazis, all uh, talking with such bravado. But you can tell they're scared little boys mm. who are overcompensating for their fear. Mm. I don't know if I responded to your question. I hope I did. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Yeah. I just am thinking about um, the passing of Father Thomas Keating and how mm. he talked about how much of our motivations are driven by yeah. security, control, power. Um, I feel it in myself as a mom even, you know, with my kids. Ooh, how could you where not? Where even yeah. out of a good thing like your yes, love, yes. 
you you feel so out of control to protect these beautiful little human beings that you want to like I want to just control the shit out of their <laughs> universe. I'm like I had the crazy thought the other day of them driving and I could seriously I this came to me at like one in the morning and I could not get back to sleep because all I could think about was like your little boys driving no, a car. No. <laughs> So With sixteen-year-old hormones, yeah, you know that that, just, yeah, that instinct, them reckless, yeah, oh yeah, it's <laughs> terrifying. So that instinct to control, that instinct to sure. to want to uh, wield power, um, it's so primal because it is so primal. terrifying to be in the now and in that surrendered, unknowing. Hmm. I don't know. Change is hard. Yeah, trying to control the circumstances of the tragic realism like i think that mm. phrase is so helpful to, of i do too yeah really wanting to take tragic hold of that yeah realism mm. i think I'd, I'd rather take comedic realism uh mm. the comedy over the tragedy but mm. i don't think it's as truthful and well. richard um going with the change theme here can a person be a christian and not be open to change i don't see how because otherwise you're saying, I mean, we used phrases like growth and holiness, deepening my relationship with Jesus. I mean, those are very traditional, pious phrases. They both imply change, growth and holiness, you know. Uh, are we really to understand the great wisdom of Jesus and the gospel at an infantile level? And the fact that we've been content with that that the way you understood the gospel story when you were a kindergartner is the truth. <laughs> oh, that's just produced such disastrous Christianity. And I especially see it when I occasionally meet, I mean this, doctors and PhDs and engineers. They will write letters to me that show brilliant intelligence. And then their theological question to me is still at the infantile level. Mm. <laughs> How can they live with such schizophrenia? To be so smart over here and so childish over there. Of course, I've come to believe that what you hear at your mother and father's knee, I know this doesn't help you as young, young parents, but is received at what we call the lower brain stem, where logic does not apply. Mama said this. Daddy said this, it's gotta be true. <laughs> and you don't even know you've processed it at that level, which also is one reason you react against it so much at a certain point, mm -hmm. because you know it's not real, <laughs> this infantile understanding of things. So to answer your question, I do not think you can be a mature Christian. I'm not trying to judge people's morality or our worthiness, but um, no, until we become an adult Christianity, it's not Christianity. <laughs> uh, that's going to help the world or help anybody else. It will remain, as it often is, highly narcissistic people hiding behind God talk. And God talk is an easy way to feel strong and superior. <laughs> it appeals to that same low-level brainstem. I've got the ultimate power, God. So use God language and you can remain very, very self-centered. Mm -hmm. 
And, and you've even fooled yourself. Yeah. It's uh, that relationship between that infantile state of dependency and Christianity and, and power seems to be so rampant right now in our culture. So rampant. And the way that I love this line that you say in your book, you say, there is no such thing as a non-political mm. Christianity. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so obvious that we've lost a kind of planetary and cosmic yes. worldview yeah. that you describe in this book in our in our faith because everything that you see in politics is is around these polarized issues that seem to have to do with what you're describing that infantile no this is what this is no 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 it's this and you know so i guess i want to know is is how does this universal christ reality this tragic realism change how we interact as as human beings in politics as christians Good question. I hope that's what the whole book is about, that reframes the gospel in the biggest frame we know. And as you know, I think Jesus' metaphor for the biggest frame is the reign of God or the kingdom of God. So I'm not talking about something new, but every time you read the kingdom of God, read in the big picture in the final picture. I hope when we understand the nature of the Christ, we've put the gospel in the biggest possible parameter of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. We Catholics celebrated last Sunday the feast of Christ the King, which was actually inaugurated by the Franciscans in the 1920. But the official title of the feast is Christ the King of the Universe. Hmm. That's the official, not coming from this notion of the cosmic Christ. It's not the king of this world. Because as long as it's this world, it's geographical places that you're king of, you know. Mm. But once you're king of the universe, king of the cosmos, uh, you're the one who names the pattern of everything. It refuses being parceled out. When the very land we're all walking on, and the Hindus are walking on the same land, uh, and the Buddhists are walking, and the Jews are walking, and the Muslims are walking on the same earth and eating the same kind of carrots and the same kind of onions as we are out of this same earth. Uh, you've just got something that can't be made parochial. It can't be made tiny anymore. Is This is a universal truth. So uh, that's why I'm so glad the publishers finally chose that title, The Universal Christ. So it's going to be very hard to politicize. Or no, I should say, uh, you, know, you could still politicize it, because as you said, there's no such thing as a non-political. You actually said that. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good. Uh, but I mean uh, partisan politics. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but all, when we say political, all we mean is it recognizes there's power equations at work in everything. Mm. Class, gender, money. (laughs) And this is the way human beings read reality. Who's got the power? Listen to any conversation. That's almost the only talk there is, is who's got the power and who doesn't by reason of what they're wearing, what they're driving, where they live, uh, how good looking they are. Jesus really did expose that demon. 
if I can call it that, by his uh, three temptations in the desert. You know, they're all about misuse of power. So thanks for seeing that. Mm-hmm. And once we say that, then that's why I say there's no such thing as a non-political Christianity. Politics is just recognizing the power equations at work. Mm-hmm. To continue with that piece on politics and power and Christianity, I just want to read this short phrase from uh, your book, The Universal Christ. Did you know that the first seven councils of the church, mm-hmm. agreed upon by both East and West, were all either convened or formally presided over by emperors? This is no small point. Emperors and governments do not tend to be interested in an ethic of love or service or nonviolence, God forbid, (laughs) and surely not forgiveness unless it somehow helps them stay in power. Can you speak to how Christianity's relationship with power has influenced our theology and how that continues today in the Christianity that we find ourselves in? Well, as apparently I said there, this is no small point. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so many people, even over the years, people would come up to me on the road and say, we remember 313. To many people, especially Roman Catholics, that just blows them out of the water if they have any historical sense because they have no idea the alignment with empire that took place in the 4th century. And that we never really left it. Once we aligned with the palaces and the kings and the queens of Europe, I think of all the kings and queens that we've canonized saints. There's no real evidence of sanctity. (laughs) They're they're trying to canonize Isabella and Ferdinand now. Oh, great. She lived in Spain. (laughs) Um, I should be And I'm sure they're fine people. I don't know much about their biographies. (laughs) But just because they were king or queen, talk about projection. Yeah. You know, and maybe she helped the poor on on one Sunday a month or so. I hope she did. But uh, we're fascinated, again, by power. And we love to canonize. I like to list the amount of canonized kings and queens. I was just in Budapest, and there is the golden crown of St. Stephen. And, uh, well, I guess he's a saint. But... <laughs> <laughs> Because this cathedral is built here in his honor. But no, he was more, you know, mm-hmm. the king of Hungary. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just using that point to illustrate how uh, once we aligned with power. And, you know, if there's any possible good news we can draw out of this present pedophilia crisis, which I don't think we've seen the end of yet, uh, the Catholic priest's ability to continue to think of himself as on a higher level uh, uh, by the clothes we wear and the titles we're given and the special lifestyle we're allowed. Our word for that in the church is clericalism. Clericalism is the Catholic form of patriarchy. Mm. Mm. But it all has been sanctified by... Well, he's a priest. And uh, those of you who aren't Catholic don't know how huge this projection is. I remember my first Mass in 1970. I just looked like a kid then. I was 26. 
and these two older gray-haired men were my altar boys. <laughs> and they both kept bowing to me and giving me the water and the wine and everything in me just said, I mean, overnight, I'm a priest, you know? Mm. And I get all of this status and all of this. Uh, it's just, it's not good for the ego of the male. And my men's work tells me that, that the male is so attracted to uh, undeserved status and power. So when we give it to the clergy, no wonder we didn't hear the gospel. Because mm. <laughs> they hadn't been cured of this or exercised from this demon themselves. And I'm not saying they were bad people, mm -hmm. but the church was another status and security system. Yeah. It wasn't the folly of the cross. It wasn't a path of descent. It was careerism and a path of ascent. So if this pedophilia crisis is going to take away from us the last remnants, it probably won't work, but uh, God's trying. I'm not saying God caused the pedophilia crisis, but God uses everything. And I think there's a taking away of a, a real demon. Hmm. Pope Francis is saying this. He calls clericalism uh, the cancer of the Catholic Church. The Pope says that. Wow. wow. The cancer of the Catholic Church. Anyway. Did that answer anything you said? Well, you started with the seven councils, yeah. but I'm just saying the pattern continues. Right. You brought uh, it into the modern era of yeah, how this continues to play out. The top, not the bottom. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That relationship to power, uh, I feel, also exists in how we cling to information as knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, sure. One of the things I so appreciate about how you teach at the living schools, you talk about. Um, knowledge is a way of knowing through love, mm. um, and how Teilhard talked about that kind of that kind of knowledge of knowing through love of mm. that um, amorizing energy as being that which actually really transforms us. And that's not about power. That's not a oh, transactional exchange of information. I have this information mm. now. I'm in the right. I'm in control. I'm yeah. in control. Yeah. I have the right uh, belief system or doctrine. Uh, and so that's a radically different way of thinking about belief. And even as a seminary student, it seems like so much of what is happening in seminaries now is arming people with a certain arming. set of information, you know, as opposed to really trying to cultivate a radical transformation. Um, and I, I think about that as, uh, you know, how Teresa Avila, she sets up this whole interior castle you know, trajectory of transformation. And your brain wants to turn it into power. You know, you want to be yes. like, okay, how do I get to the next I stage? Know. And I'm going to climb <laughs> into that. I'm going to get to that yeah. seventh mansion. But then at the end of all of it, she says, now the goal of all of this is how can I best serve love? Mm. Look what love has done to me and how can I best serve love? Now that is transformation. Yes. It's not about information. Mm. And I wonder if that was my barometer in life about that which really helps me know through love and makes me a transformed person in love, religion doesn't really help with that no. anymore. Why is that? Theology without spirituality is dangerous. Mm. <laughs> That's what, you know, in the Alexandrian uh, 
church, which was the more mystical of the Eastern church. For centuries and still, I think in some traditions, you can't be a bishop unless you're a monk first. Mm. Mm. That was their attempt to combine spirituality with theology. The bishops were only taken from the monks. And there was men who didn't come to be a bishop. They came for the search for God. And assuming that that was their real concern. But when your life is not really a search for God, but just God answers, God talk, which is personal empowerment, that I can talk with superiority. Theology is dangerous Mm. for the soul, for the community. And you look at most of the theological arguments of the last thousand years, and they're all, I've got the right information, Mm -hmm. and you don't have the right information. You know, here's where contemplation really comes to play. If a contemplative moment is a moment where you say yes to what's in front of you, that you love it before you can know it, you understand? Hmm. And that's what the early Franciscan said, love precedes knowledge. We thought we were better than the Dominicans because the Dominicans said truth was higher than love. No, 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 we said love is (laughs) the very need we had to prove that we were right Mm -hmm. on love (laughs) maybe uh, gives away our our bias too. But I think that's what contemplation teaches you. Appreciation before critique. Admiration before dismissal are minimizing anything. And that's what critique is, always minimizing things. Um, You can't be a a negative, cynical person and be a contemplative. You just can't. They contradict one another. Yeah. Uh, So I hope I'm responding to your question. Uh, It's so important that we, well, let me sum it up in this. You only really know what you love. Hmm. Other things you do do not know, you observe from a distance. The subject-object split is maintained. But once you say yes to it and grant it subjectivity and dignity and honor, which is to love it, (laughs) then you begin to know it, yes, in in its frailness, but also in its fullness. This is why contemplation is the change that changes everything. When you see contemplatively, you see lovingly, while not eliminating your critical mind. Mm -hmm. But your critical mind is subsumed under your appreciative mind. The yes precedes the no. You embody that so well, Richard. And oh, I, I wish. <laughs> I wanna, you, you shared this story with me, and I want to ask just a personal question, if you'd be willing. Um, when we were driving back from Snowmass, you talked about um, the, the moment when your superiors asked you or encouraged you to pursue a doctorate. Yeah, yeah. And your own personal decision to not go that route. Why, why did you decide not to go down that path? Well, first I can tell you, there was no great virtue in that. I can still see the spot in the seminary dining room where he pulled me aside, the systematics professor, and asked me if I'd want to do that. 
Well, I had been for 13 years in an all-male world of academics. <laughs> I just wanted to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. I just couldn't wait to start teaching and preaching and, mm. and mm. being with people. Yeah. Not that they weren't people, but the all-male system was just so self-enclosed. So there really wasn't virtue. But thank God the Spirit guided me. Because mm. if I had said yes to that, it would have been four more years of major studies, and then it would have dictated the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, I would have had to pay back in my own mind for paying that much to educate me. I better teach at a university or something like that. Mm. New Jerusalem would not have happened. CAC would not have happened. The men's work would not have happened. So thank God uh, that I was able to do much more pastoral work. Mm. Uh, now I'm grateful for the academic education they gave me, which allows me to speak with a certain self-confidence. But uh, thank God I didn't ensconce that. Because you know what I, I, I met in so many of my professors who had doctorates? Not all of them, because they had some wonderful exceptions. But they were forever writing and talking to their professors. Yes. Mm. You'd see it in their sermons that you're not talking to me. You're, you're pleasing your professors by being academically correct. Yeah. Mm. And they never get out of that. Mm. Yeah. So it's another fascinating relationship between power and theology mm. and where we've kind of gotten away from, from yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah, the epistemology of love. Yeah. Epistemology of love. What a good phrase, yes. I think you came up with that oh, one too. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm just admiring myself. <laughs> just going through all the Richard Roy greatest hits. <laughs> all right. And it's been so helpful to have you talk about um, the danger of power and theology without spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so much of spirituality, at least the way that I've um, learned from you for the way that you've taught it, is through not only contemplation but just kind of mining your own experience and being Mm. in relationship to that mining your own experience good and you use this phrase uh the depths of things like going to the depths of things and i'm wondering if you could unpack that for us what does it mean to go to the depths of things to experience them fully even your mistakes as Mm. a way on the path of transformation well the depth of things is never the the first visibility of things is never the first. Oh, it means this. The first level we're calling transactional. It's all about what it can do for me, what's in it for me. How can I make money from this? How can this get me a doctorate or whatever? Uh, So the depth of things is letting go of those self-referential concerns and finding soul meaning, which is really to find the soul of the other thing or person or event, to go beyond, as Merton says, the shadow and the disguise. Because um, it is all shadowy and disguised. And that's the wonder of the Christ mystery that says spirit is hidden inside of matter. If you stay at the materialistic level, you stay at the transactional level. And you can do that. Let's pick on the Eucharist, which we Catholics make so much of. 
just about proving that this bread is really Jesus, you know. And because I believe it, uh, I have jumped the leap. But maybe there's no capacity for presence. And if there's no capacity for presence, you can make the intellectual transaction in belief in the real presence. But presence is, you've heard me say this, a reciprocal concept. Mm. <laughs> uh, a mutuality, a giving and a receiving. And until you're capable of presence, that's the depth of things. Mm. Not just proving that the bread is Jesus, but letting the bread have life for you, speak to you, uh, uh, love you, affirm you, challenge you. That's the beginning of the inner dialogue. So once you begin an inner dialogue with things, you will soon meet the depth of things, which sort of never stops. Mm. I don't know if you've gotten up to the chapter on This Is My Body yet, where I talk about this in the book, but I was amazed myself as I wrote that. My God, this, this mystery of the bread and the wine is a bottomless pit of meaning. It's just, yes, 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 yes. And I think of all the centuries we spent arguing about, is it really Jesus? Mm. <laughs> and who has the power to make it Jesus? <laughs> who doesn't have the power to make it Jesus? What a horrible waste of time. It's all power again. Mm. So... And there's something about what you just said too about with with presence. Like you cannot bring a conclusion with presence because hmm. if you bring a conclusion, then you've already you've already caved it all in. You close it down. Yeah, that's right. And there's that's endless right. conclusions, right? When you bring when you're present to the Eucharist. Excellent, excellent. Yes, you're led into the mists of mystery, where there's always another level, another level. Uh, how will God delight me today? Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting as we've been talking about being able to live in that unknowing and presence as the same infinite field of possibility. And well put. you you talk about in chapter eight of your book, you talk about how um the artist has a certain level mm. of access to mystery, to presence and to depth. And I know you're a lover of the arts and of artists. Mm. So I wonder if you could share how art forms part of your contemplative seeing in that way? I've always loved beauty and art. It's the one thing over the years when I was on the road and I would have an afternoon off after a conference, I would almost always go to the local art museum. And it was something I could do by myself. Sometimes people were with me, but even there we'd divide up. I think artists because they're more intuitive, symbolic, and right brain, are often the first to intuit uh, with, uh, their mind doesn't fully understand it yet either, but they don't insist on full understanding before they write a piece of music or, or, or they start painting. It's, it's, they trust the unconscious more. And that's what the engineer and the scientist just isn't trained to do. It's not his or her fault. Uh, they only proceed by evidence <laughs> uh, and by an ability to please their professors. 
And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that in my doctor, that he proceeds with evidence. But um, the artist is almost the first one after the mystic who intuits reality. And I'm not saying everybody who's an artist. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of postmodern art and hard rock, if you don't mind me saying so, is... <laughs> not, not your thing, Richard? <laughs> it's not mine. It just seems chaos, chaos to me. <laughs> yeah. And I know I'm representing my generation. But it's just, why would you want to enter into chaos? And I'm not saying there can't be asymmetry, you know, as Stravinsky's music... Uh, but even inside of the asymmetry, there's harmony, there's coherence. Uh, my mind just in, insists on some incoherence, and as you know, I'm going to say, which is precisely the ability to include a certain degree of incoherence. Uh, but when you make incoherence, is Jackson Pollock one of your artist friends? <laughs> I mean, the first time I saw Jackson Pollock, <laughs> Please, Jackson, forgive me. I'm not trying to put you down. <laughs> I think you're even a Polish Catholic, aren't you? Or, no, that was someone else. Uh, but it just it feels like delighting in incoherence. Mm -hmm. And if you're a teenager looking for meaning, and this is what you first delight in, I don't think that's going to help you grow up. But that's just my opinion. That's just my opinion. Maybe an older person like I could look at it and say, well, I like the colors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. And that's probably because I'm not educated in art. I just appreciate good art. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'd probably be old-fashioned. You know, I like realism <laughs> and, and harmonious colors and beauty and so forth. I know what I'm going to make you for Christmas now. <laughs> I can't wait. Just like a lot of chaos on a canvas. <laughs> I love it. And I, I think, too, you know, you end Chapter 8 by another intuitive genius, uh, Carl Jung, and the way that he worked with his with mm. meaning and unconsciousness and unconsciousness and collective unconsciousness. You know, there's that inscription over his archway that I... When I first heard of it, I, I loved it and was immediately drawn Bridget, to it. Yeah. But it kind of has taken on different meanings throughout different seasons of my own mm. life. And I'm curious for you, um, that inscription over his archway, which is invoked or not invoked, God is still present. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for you? And how, how did that come to be a part of this chapter? Well, first of all, you know, when I first... Uh, I remember quoting Jung even in Switzerland when I was teaching a lot in Europe. I would get all these grimaces because they have him written off as an anti-Christian and as an unbeliever. Uh, I was, I said, he's one of your own. I said that to the Swiss people. You don't know. We don't study Carl Jung. Of course, these were all Swiss Reformed uh, Protestants who just. Oh boy. Didn't know how to think symbolically, didn't know how to think intuitively. Uh, darn. So the reason I think it's such a wonderful quote is that he would want... Now, I heard it was on his tombstone. Did you read over the archway? It doesn't matter. Well, I, yeah, I thought it was, you know, he had 
the place he went to to write. Yes, Bollinger. Yes, yeah. and I thought it was over the archway of oh, maybe um, it is. of that place where yeah. he would enter there. I often there. get half of the facts I could be wrong. And half wrong. Editors have to correct all those things. It doesn't matter. But the fact that he would want... God is present. This is a man who's experienced presence, mm-hmm. you know, and presence in such a wide field that he knows that it's not just the people who say the right words, those who invoke. There's people who don't invoke the God who experienced the presence. You know, you don't have just this here, do you, in my little book? No, I don't think you don't so. Need I have a, uh, the whole book begins with this wonderful quote from Isaiah. I'm saying, here I am, here I am, even to those who do not seek me. Even to those who do not uh, study me, I'm shouting, here I am, here I am. So for me, Jung is just repeating what Isaiah said Mm -hmm. (laughs) and what Jesus said when he he said, you know, it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do it, who do the truth instead of those who speak true words. Uh, this is no small point. Uh, and that's why you've heard me say, secularism is the inevitable child of Christianity. Hmm. Once you get the incarnation, it, God doesn't really matter. I don't think, who am I to say the mind of God? But I don't think God cares that you get God's name right. Uh, it's that you're in the flow. Hmm. And I mean, research scientists, I often watch nature shows on TV. And these people who care about, you know, armadillos, and they've given their whole life (laughs) to to studying the the life cycle of an armadillo. And they weep when their pet armadillo dies. I'll take them any day over a, a stuffy Christian who doesn't love hardly anything, much less armadillos. <laughs> it's uh, astounding to me. Uh, once you get the contemplative eyes, you can notice in a moment where the flow is out and where there is no flow. Yeah. Now, people in the force field of love and people who are just religious. So that's a big commentary. Invoked or not invoked, God is still present. That's genius mm. quote. <laughs> Have either of you heard that story of Jung where somebody asked him, do you believe oh, yeah. in God? Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't believe in God, I know. Mm-hmm. And just you speaking can see of it that on knowledge. Film. Oh, yeah. If, uh, yeah, if, and it's even more touchy because he halts. I don't, this way I remember, I don't believe, I know. <laughs> it was just very well said. You so know? profound. But that yeah. seems to be, you know, the thread that's running through this entire conversation yes. is that mm-hmm. that deep recognition that doesn't have to be placed in a category mm-hmm. of power, mm-hmm. certainty, belief systems. It's just an innate, um, like an inner response to what is ultimately true. Mm-hmm. And uh, you say this so beautifully in your book. You say that uh, kind of, three key aspects of this path are respect, wonder, and reverence. And I wonder if you consider those to be three components of, of the contemplative life. Yeah, that's perfectly said. Uh, 
You've heard me say respect is to look at it a second time. Respect, you know. Wonder, that's the beginning of the religious instinct. If you've never had a moment where you want to kneel and kiss the ground, I don't think you're ready for God. <laughs> if there's never been something that, oh God, this is it. This is more than enough. Uh, what was the third word I used? Wonder? Reverence. Reverence, yeah, mm. yeah, reverence. Who was the wonderful? I think it was Joseph Pieper, that man I met up at Santo Domingo years ago. Uh, he was a scholastic uh, philosopher. And he has a whole book just on reverence, mm. what it means to live in reverence before reality. He was a holy man. There was a, a time when I was feeling so outside of the fold of Christianity, like I'd been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You know, I just didn't, I didn't fit into the <laughs> <Me> institution. <too. laughs> and uh, somebody told me, um, pass along Abraham Joshua Heschel's line oh. of, oh, he's wonderful. But yeah, the, yeah. the definition of faith that he gives is what? living with awe and wonder. Mm. Oh. And I thought, okay, I can do that whether I'm in an institution or not. I can dedicate my life to that kind of to way and wonder. of living, yeah. That's, the, for me, the foundational religious instinct. And I don't trust religion. I am repeating myself now, but I don't trust religion that uh, doesn't live in respect and wonder mm. before the miraculous character of everything. But that's always to see the depth of things again. We go back to what we were... If you don't go to the depth... You don't see it, you know? I, again, you know I love animals, and I watch these nature shows. Just when I see how human beings mistreat animals, just, they're, don't you realize they're totally helpless? Don't you realize you're totally in control and they have no control? And you're abusing that power for, I don't know what reason, but... Uh, the basic religious instinct is not there. Mm -hmm. Of the depth of things, the goodness of things, the dignity of things, the thisness of things. Yeah. Thank you for getting it. Thank you. Yeah. And, and to wrap up our session here, taking those three words, um, Richard, where have you experienced respect, wonder, and reverence as the Christ this past week? Well, you ask such good questions. You know, it's Wednesday, and on Wednesday morning I have the parish mass here at uh, Holy Family. These are mostly Mexican-American. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, in the old days we weren't allowed to talk in the church. You had to come inside. Well, I was just, I go out a little early and sit in my chair waiting for, uh, for the crowd to gather, uh, usually if, about five minutes before seven. And uh, I just couldn't help but recognize how each one, as they came in, had to shake the hands of every other person. You know, they all know one another. They all smile at one another. But I just, I wanted to weep for the, these humble people who don't think they're important at all, you know. But the reverence they show to one another, 
and they'll go out of their way. They got to greet everyone. I mean, it's frankly a little tiresome for Gringo. Okay, let's stop the greeting, <laughs> so Father can start his mass. <laughs> it goes on and on, and as soon as I start, of course, they stop, uh, which again is a, a respect for me. Uh, it's just there's a holiness that is totally unrecognized. In fact, in the old church, we would have called it noisiness. It wasn't holiness. If you were a good Catholic, you'd keep quiet in church. They aren't quiet until the Mass starts, then they're quiet. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, a gift this morning already. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to hear more about these ideas as part of an online community, consider participating in the live webcast of our spring conference, March 28th through the 31st. For details and to register, visit cac.org events. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.